Welcome back to fractals. In the past three lectures, we've been building up the theory of fractals. Up till now, we've defined fractals as shapes with infinitely rich, fine structure in which the small parts are just scaled down versions of the original whole, or at least in some way reminiscent of the structure of the whole. We've seen why fractals are so intimately related to chaos, and we've learned how to calculate their dimension, which turned out, surprisingly enough, sometimes to be a number that is not a whole number. It's in between two whole numbers, a fractional dimension. Now we devote the next three lectures to a survey of the intriguing ways that fractals are being applied in science, commerce, and the arts. The goal of this lecture is to open your eyes to fractal processes in nature, processes in time, not just shapes. Fractal processes in nature and in patterns of human activity and to explain why their presence changes everything we thought we knew about risk and volatility. The new idea in these lectures, especially in this one, is that fractals are not just static geometric shapes. They can also be erratic processes in time, such as price fluctuations in the stock market, bursts of data traffic on the internet, or the unexpected rumbling of an earthquake. How can we think of a temporal process as akin to a fractal shape? The connection is that stock prices and other erratic processes vary over a wide range of scales, both in time and in the size of their fluctuations, and in that sense can be regarded as scale-free, a concept that we introduced in Lecture 14. To reinforce what we mean by scale-free structure, let's look a bit more deeply at how fractal shapes differ from non-fractal ones. To do so, we're going to draw on concepts from probability and statistics for the first time in this course. We don't need much, we just need the idea of a distribution, a probability distribution, which you may remember from seeing the curve after you took a test in school where all the different grades are plotted and how many people got how many grades. That's the kind of thing we'll be showing, distributions of some property. Now, let's look again, our first point then is how are fractal shapes different from non-fractal ones? Take a look at this. We're showing on the left, an example is a schematic thing. I'm not talking about time yet. I'm still just in the world of shapes to get across this idea of scales and how many scales are involved. That's the, the distinguishing thing we want to focus on here, that a non-fractal shape or actually a non-fractal process has one typical scale. Like here, I'm trying to convey that by showing a series of disks, little circles of different sizes, but they're basically all the same size. There's one typical scale such that if I made a graph showing the number of features of a particular size as a function of the size of that feature, most of them are centered around some typical value. There's the classic curve that you hear about in connection with test scores or heights of people or anything else. It's commonly called a normal distribution and it's just often called the bell-shaped curve, especially when people talk about intelligence testing or whatever. So this is the bell curve that you've heard about so much. Statisticians speak of the Gaussian distribution or the normal distribution. That's jargon for what we're talking about. I'll probably tend to just call it the bell curve. But I really do mean the, the classic bell curve that's talked about in statistics courses, the Gaussian or normal distribution. Now, in contrast to that something distributed like that, where basically everything has the same size except for little fluctuations around that mean value. Fractal shapes or processes have features over a wide range of scales. 
their features can vary over a much broader range, with small features often resembling the larger ones in some way. Now, in the, the illustration shown here, the features are signified by these little circles, or there are some big ones. Here's a big monster one, big humongous one. And so we have a bunch of different scales, and that's what I'm showing in the corresponding distribution picture. If I look at the number of features as a function of the size of the features, you see that there's a lot, that is, the curve is high, corresponding to small features. That is, there's lots of little ones. There's only, in this picture, one big one, but in general, there are these big events or big features are somewhat rare, quite rare. But what's really important is the way that the distribution behaves as a function of size. That is, we see it dropping down according to some kind of decaying curve, and that curve takes a particular form, algebraically speaking, called a power law. Very important concept that we'll be emphasizing in this lecture. A power law distribution is, is one of the key ideas in thinking about the statistics of fractals. Here's an expression, then, of what we mean by a power law and why it's called a power law. It's to show the number of events or features of a certain size as a function of that size. In the case of a temporal process like the frequency of earthquakes or stock market price changes, this is the sort of event or feature we're interested in. And so what we're showing in a picture like this is that there are many events of small size, not so many events of large size, and the relationship is that the number of events, which is y, is proportional to x, the size, to some power, negative d. The negative sign means that it's really more like 1 over x to the d. It's a, it's a decaying function as x increases, as you can see from the picture. And this d is the exponent that we'll be talking about, the power, the power that x is being raised to. Now, power laws are the algebraic expression of the scale-free structure of fractals, a concept that we also talked about previously, that there's no inherent scale here. There's, there's small scales, large scales, everything in between. They're all there in the fractal. And power laws are what we want to focus on for the rest of the lecture because they are the link between shapes that we've been thinking about and processes in time. They occur for all sorts of things besides simply shapes. The idea is that events occur, like earthquakes, stock price changes, and so on, and the large ones are much rarer than the small ones, as I've just shown. In a surprising number of different settings, that relationship between frequency of events and their size follows a relationship of the type we've just been looking at, a power law. Just like the features, the geometric features of a, a geometric fractal, we saw power laws in connection with thinking about the coastline of Norway. I don't know if you remember, but it was in the last lecture. I was making a big lot of noise about m equals r to the d. And if you think about that, m referred to the number of small copies in the whole. m is sort of like number of features. r was a scale factor, a reduction factor. That's sort of like a feature size. And d is that dimension, an exponent. So that relationship, m equals r to the d, was exactly of the type we're talking about here, where the number of features is being related to their size. Here, it's number of events of a particular size that we're looking at, but the basic idea is the same and the power law structure is the same. Now, here's <clears throat> an extremely important idea and a really interesting one that, that will help you understand our modern world much better if you can assimilate this. It's, it's something, one of the contributions that this course will make 
to your thinking about everyday life. I think it may change the way you look at things in the everyday world. And it has to do with understanding power laws. They have very counterintuitive properties, totally different from those taught in traditional statistics courses and possibly very different from what you just think you understand by common sense. And that's because a power law distribution has what's called a heavy tail, sometimes called, it's not the most polite expression, a fat tail or a long tail. There was a a best-selling book recently called The Long Tail, which used that term. But statisticians generally speak of heavy tails. Whatever, I'll probably use all those words. Now, what's interesting about the heavy tail is that it tells us that extremely large outliers, events of whopping size, though still rare, they're in the tail of the distribution, the tail referring to the part far out on the extreme right, the very rare events. Although rare, for a power law, they are much less rare than they would be for a normal distribution. In other words, enormous potentially cataclysmic events are predicted to occur much more frequently than you'd expect based on normal statistics. And such outliers can have a stunning, dramatic impact on a system's average behavior. Let me give you a simple illustration of that. Uh, Think about money. We all have intuition about money. Suppose the world's richest man, Bill Gates, walks into this room right now, or a room of 100 people, let's say. His presence would change the average income in the room very significantly. It's just one person. But his contribution of his, whether we talk about his annual income, which I don't know whether it would be, if he, he's estimated to have a wealth of something like $50 billion, maybe just if he keeps the bank, keeps the money in the bank and is getting interest, I'm sure he's smarter than that. But, but if he just were getting interest, he'd be making on the order of several billion a year just from the interest alone. So, so his income is out there in the billions, and that would certainly, I don't know about you other guys, but speaking for myself, this would change the average income in the room very, very significantly, just one person. But in contrast, suppose the world's tallest man walks in, tallest, not richest, he wouldn't change the average height in this room by very much. And that's an interesting thing. Why the big difference? And it's because heights and incomes are distributed in very different ways. Heights are normally distributed. The tail of the distribution drops off extremely fast. In fact, exponentially fast, which is about the fastest that something can drop off in math, in practice. And so what that means is you really don't ever see anyone with a height, let's say, 10 times the average. There are no people 50 feet tall. You don't really see anyone even two times the average. It's pretty, there has never been any recorded human being 10 feet tall. And you also don't see well, okay, the point is made that, that the distribution is quite tight, although it has outliers. There are, after all, eight feet tall people occasionally, but they're not as extreme as they would be for incomes where you have people with incomes of 10000 a year, 100000 a year, and I can go many factors of 10 out to Bill Gates, several billion a year. Now, whereas incomes follow a power law in the long tail of their di- Uh, Yeah, so the point is incomes don't follow a normal distribution. They follow a power law distribution. They have this enormous, heavy tail going way, way out there. You keep going out past millions, out to billions. And so they drop off very slowly. There are people out there with Bill Gates. There's Warren Buffett and various Arab sheiks and other people. So there are lots of people out in the tail, though still rare. That power law distribution of the tail of incomes was discovered in the late 1800s by Vilfredo, Pareto. 
And it was the first scientific use of a power law distribution. So this is not really a contrived example to be talking about incomes. That's where power laws were first noticed in, in regard to their statistical significance. So why the big difference between heights and incomes? It's sort of obvious if you think about it that heights are constrained by the laws of biology and physics, resulting in a characteristic scale for the process of human height. That is, you, there's, there's biological reasons that people are not 50 feet tall. But incomes are not constrained in the same way by any laws of economics or politics, at least in a capitalist society where you can make as much money as you can make, uh, subject to taxation, of course. But other than that, you really have basically unconstrained income. And so there is no inherent scale for income. The absence of the scale makes the distribution scale-free, and then power laws pop in there automatically. Consider some other examples from finance. Again, to underscore the, the, the difference, the really dramatic difference between things that are normally distributed and things that are power law distributed. On October 19, 1987, now known as Black Monday, the Dow Jones Industrial dropped by 22% in a single day. Compared to the usual level of volatility, the typical fluctuations in the stock market, this was a drop of more than 20 standard deviations. Now, I've spoken, I, I said I wouldn't be using much statistics here, but I'm sure you have some feeling for what I mean by standard deviations. That's roughly speaking, a standard deviation is a measure of the width of a bell curve. And so when I say something is one standard deviation away, that's a deviation, but not much. I mean, there's plenty of things that fall within one standard deviation. About two-thirds of the time, things will fall within one standard deviation. Two standard deviations away, you'd expect to see 95% of your observations will be in there. 5% wouldn't fall in. Those will be outliers. And you've probably heard about Six Sigma, you know, used in, in thinking about business practices and so on. But this is now talking 20 Sigma, 20 standard deviations. That is all but theoretically impossible. According to traditional statistics, that is, if you calculate the probability of a 20 sigma event using a normal distribution, which, notice the word normal, there's a, a normative sense there. This is the way things are supposed to be. Normally, that would occur with a probability of less than 1 in 10 to the 50th power, 10 followed by 50 zeros, or 1 followed by 50 zeros. So that's essentially... It. Impossible. That cannot happen in the lifetime of the universe. And yet it happened on Black Monday. And we see events like that happening more than you'd think, a lot more than you'd think. And the reason is that the normal distribution doesn't work for many of the things in the modern world. It does work for heights. It works for sizes of ball bearings. It works for certain things constrained by laws of physics or chemistry. But in many other situations, the normal distribution is, is not just wrong, it's really misleading, and it'll give you the wrong intuition about the way the world works. That's, that's really the big point of this lecture. You need to be aware of power law distributions and their fractal properties because much of our world depends on them. Now, fractal statistics are the really better description for many of these events in the, the financial and commercial world, as Benoit Mandelbrot himself and his disciples have emphasized. For example, one more example from this world. Let me show you four charts, sometimes called fever charts, you know, almost like a fever as a function of time, except these are fever charts for the price of certain commodities or, or stocks. Two of the charts I'm going to show you are real and two are fake. 
And so I want you to see if you can pick out which ones are produced by mathematical models and, and which ones are real. So there'll be pictures of prices versus time. Try to pick the fakes. All right, there are four of them. And um, you notice that I've deliberately taken off any scale indicators. I'm not showing you the length of time or the numbers on the vertical axis for what the price jumps are or anything else. So I don't know, do you have a, a feeling in your head? It's not easy to tell. So let's try a different approach. Rather than showing you price as a function of time, let's look at the day-to-day -day changes in price. Now, in saying day, I should put that in quotes because I haven't told you if this is data measured over a microsecond or over a year or whatever. I just mean the, the times between successive events. So let's look at the price changes from one day, so to speak, to the next. Again, the same data, but now plotted a different way. All right, so here are the daily changes in prices. Now I have a feeling that you can guess something about which two are bogus, that is produced by a mathematical model, and which two are real. Maybe you don't know that. I have a feeling you can it's clearly, you know, like when the police do a lineup, sometimes you could tell this is not the guy that committed the crime. Can you see, and there, well, there's one that sticks out of this lineup, right? Number two. Number two is the prediction of the traditional statistical model known as a random walk model generated from bell curve data. That is, we, we matched a standard deviation and a mean to the data and then just assume that events occur at random independently, price changes going up and down according to the random walk. And this is what the picture would look like graphed that way. You see fluctuations, there are some outliers, that is, there are spikes up and down, but overall the picture doesn't look nearly spiky enough to be any, it's just not plausible, it's not, clearly not real. It doesn't look like two of the other, I mean, there are three here, two of which are real, the remaining ones, but now it's a little bit harder. Who, which one of those is the imposter of the remaining three? I don't know if you have a feeling. This one is thicker, clearly, than the other two. This one's quite bursty, right? You see that there's bursts of volatility here, and then quiet periods. Notice it's sort of quiet without much going on. Then some more big bursts, then quiet. Likewise, this one is very bursty here, and then sort of quiet. Forget about number two. This one's got really big spikes in it here and there. Well, any guess? Let me show you what the right answer is. The first one is relative changes in IBM stock prices over a period of those years from 1959 to 96. This one is a Deutschmark dollar exchange rate. And this one is from Mandelbrot's recent work on applying fractals to finance. So if you find this sort of thing interesting, I would encourage you to take a look at Mandelbrot's work. He's got a book called The Misbehavior of Markets that makes for interesting reading. All right, let's move along now to talk about the Internet. Data traffic on the internet, another feature of our modern world, also obeys fractal statistics. And this has confounded the engineers responsible for the internet, at least in its early days. Because at that time, people were thinking of the internet as analogous to the phone network, which engineers had a lot of experience with the phone network. But they're very different in that the phone network, remember, has limitations on it based on human biology again. How long can a person talk? How fast can we talk? How much can we tolerate hearing from somebody else? You know, I mean, there are sort of intrinsic limitations based on it being human voice. Whereas on the internet, I can send you any size file. I can send you a movie. I could send it as fast as I want. So there are 
it's sort of scale-free. It's unconstrained in the same way that, that incomes are unconstrained, whereas voice is constrained in the same way that heights are constrained. Now, what we see on the Internet is that file sizes vary widely from tiny emails to bigger photographs to enormous movies, leading to violent bursts in the overall traffic on the system. And as I say, that came as a surprise in the early days of the Internet because engineers were used to handling voice traffic. In the case of voice traffic, the statistical description of bell curves works beautifully. The whole theory of voice communications and, and network engineering for the phone network was based on the bell curve, and it worked very, very nicely. But the burstiness of Internet traffic makes it much harder to ensure reliability of the overall system. That's a significant consequence of this power law effect. Think about how often you're frustrated by delays on the web, congestion on the web, compared to how often you would fail to get a, a dial tone using a landline. You really don't have any reliability problem in the phone network compared to the web. A related complication is that the traffic on the web fluctuates on a wide range of timescales. It's not just that the sizes of the files vary a lot. The timescales vary a lot, too, from hours to fractions of a second. Let me show you some data about that. First, I'll be showing you data having to do with bell curves that are have bell curve modeling compared to Internet traffic, and you'll see what a poor job it does. So here's bell curve model versus reality. And I'm going to show you a series of pictures paired with the ones on the left being a model prediction from the bell curve way of thinking and the one on the right being measured data from traffic coming into a certain big corporation reported by the engineers who published this study, Walter Willinger and, and Vern Pax. And I have a feeling it might be AT&T since they used to work for them. But anyway, they don't name the company. Now, the packets arriving every 0.1 second is a measure of the traffic coming into the corporation. That's notice a very short time scale, a tenth of a second. How many packets are arriving in that time? And what they find is that, you know, it's quite noisy. It's jumping around up and down depending on when these packets, remember packet is a measure of internet traffic. How, how many packets are coming in? It's jumping around. This is the model. This model is to be compared to what it really was, which is this curve, which is also jumpy. I mean, it's not point by point the same, but it's got the same overall statistical character. And what they did was to make it a fair comparison, they took the actual process, looked at its mean and standard deviation, standard bell curve statistics, and used the same mean and standard deviation for a random process called a Poisson process, and then generated random numbers with that to simulate what they were seeing on the right. So these two look reasonably comparable, at least overall. But then what's interesting, and this is like analogous to picking out the imposter in that Mandelbrot finance study, suppose we zoom out. Instead of looking at this very short time scale of a tenth of a second, look at traffic coming in over longer time period, ten times longer, one second. How many packets do you see then? So now we go to two more slides. Here's the model. Here's reality. And the, the black regions indicate the zoom in the sense that this black region would have been expanded to produce the figures that we looked at a minute ago. That is, it's, it's all squished down because we had only been looking earlier at a shorter time interval, and that short time interval is this region here shown in black. Okay, now let me quickly go through these because what I'm going to show is as I keep zooming out to timescales of 10 seconds, now we're starting to see that the bell curve model is looking way too flat compared to the real data, and finally, at a time scale of how many packets arriving every 60 seconds, the bell curve 
has produced a very flat picture, much different from what's seen in reality. The reason for it being so flat is that if you think about how many packets arrive every minute, things kind of average out. And so even though it's noisy on a time scale of a tenth of a second, if you wait as long as a minute, things average out. And so that typically you can say how many packets will arrive in that, in that minute. And you'll be pretty sure of it. This is the kind of thing insurance companies make big use of. They know very well how many traffic accidents they have to deal with in a given year, because even though they don't know if you're going to have an accident, they have an averaging because they've insured thousands or hundreds of thousands of people and things average out. So insurance relies on this kind of averaging that the normal distribution implies. But see that it doesn't work for the Internet. The average behavior being so flat here doesn't correspond to reality. In contrast, if we look at a fractal model, as I'll show here, then when we make a, a match across the short time scale of 0.1 second to get the thing started, to get the model calibrated to reality, here's the model on the left, reality on the right, when we zoom back to larger time scales of 1 second, 10 seconds, or 60 seconds, the overall structure of the graphs is similar all through. That is, the fractal model is capturing the burstiness and the different time scales of Internet traffic over a wide range of scales from a tenth of a second up to a minute. The fractal models do a much better job. Finally, let me turn to earthquakes and other natural hazards, things like wildfires, floods, other disastrous events in nature. They turn out to also be described by fractal statistics. Very important, as I say, for the insurance company to know about this, as well as should be of concern to us, like people living in Southern California need to understand this for reasons we'll be talking about in a second. So processes like this, earthquakes and so on, gyrate much more wildly and frequently than you'd expect on conventional statistical grounds, which complicates the task of managing uh, both the financial industries and the insurance industries. Here's an example of the difficulty. Let's look at the distribution of earthquakes. By that I mean not their distribution in space. I'm going to just fix my attention on one part of space, this being California. And we'll ask, how frequently do earthquakes occur of a particular size? How often do we see magnitude 8, which would be a tremendous earthquake, a really devastating earthquake? How often do we see magnitude 4, a rumbler, but not a devastating one? Well, here's what the data look like. This is earthquakes showing a power law in their frequency as a function of their size. That is, the data are this line here. I'm showing the number of earthquakes per year occurring in Southern California having certain magnitudes greater than a number M, magnitude M being shown down here, running from 4 up to an estimate for magnitudes greater than 8. Now, these magnitude 8 ones have not been directly observed, but they've been inferred from the geological record. You can see the, the signature of those events back into the past through thousands of years. They, they basically melt some of the rocks, and you can see some of that to let you calculate when these earthquakes occurred going back hundreds of years. From that, we can estimate the frequency of these enormous ones, really terrible earthquakes. And notice that that dot corresponding to the terrible ones lies really right on the extrapolation of the line for the moderate to big ones. There's one pattern extending all the way from the, the largest earthquakes to the smallest. And that pattern is a power law. Only though, I should say, to be clear, it's a power law if you graph the frequency versus the amount of destructive energy released in the earthquake. It's not a power law with respect to magnitude, 
the energy release, you, it turns out magnitude involves logarithms again. And it's the logarithm of energy that is related to magnitude. So when we, that's just a technical detail. But if we graph things as a function of energy rather than magnitude, then you find that power laws govern the distribution of earthquakes. Meaning, again, remember the bottom line of that, it means that big ones occur much more often than you might think. If they were, certainly much more than they would if they were normally distributed. And so that complicates the task of insurance for earthquakes. If we look, for instance, at earthquake insurance payouts, here's what it looks like. This is the, earth, uh, the insurance payouts data from payouts for California earthquakes showing what's called the loss ratio, which you can think of as the amount of money put in in the form of claims, this is what people are, would like to be paid, versus the premiums that have been paid into the insurance company. So that's a measure of sort of how bad a year it was in terms of earthquakes, how much had to be paid out. And here are some years. 1971 was not terrible, a payout loss ratio of less than 20. Here are some good years for the insurance companies, and plus people didn't have earthquakes, so they're happy. This was a bad year. There's a big spike there, but all right, you know, you expect some variations from time to time. So look at all these data over these years from 71 to 93, I think, is that last one shown. And try to get a sense using statistics for what is a typical scale. If you were an insurer, what would you typically expect to have to pay in a given year? I mean, you might say a number of like maybe 70 or something, even, you know, dominating the data using this big one, or maybe a number like 40. Well, here's what happened in 1994, the year not shown. The loss ratio for 94 was 2,273, which is off the chart. Compare, this is 140. If I were to graph 2,000, it'd be way off the top of the page, 10 times, more than 10 times the data of what's shown here. So I hope that brings home the point to you that you can't really extrapolate trends very well when the process you're trying to extrapolate is governed by a power law. This, of course, has to do with the Northridge earthquake in 94, which cost some 10 to $30 billion of damage, depending on estimates. So although we may never be able to predict where or when such catastrophes may occur, fractals, they're not going to solve that for us. But the hope is that a better understanding of the fractal statistics involved here will provide a more rational basis for assessing the overall risk of these events and for guarding against them in a more rational and sensible way. Next time, we'll turn our attention from the fractals around us to the fractals inside us. I'll see you then.